Hi, it's Alex here, and I'm recording this in the middle of March 2020, as the COVID-19 crisis continues to escalate here in the UK. And I wanted to dedicate this episode to everyone out there in the creative industries, particularly if you're feeling pain right now, professional pain, whether you are a producer, a cinema, a sales agent, a distributor, or any of the incredible freelancers out there, which is which are so crucial to this industries or these industries. And it's a very difficult time. And I wanted to acknowledge that and to share my solidarity. And I also wanted to say, I think it's a moment, I guess, to realize how interdependent we all are as businesses and individuals in this in this process of taking stories to audiences and that's an incredible thing and it means that we are all in this together and i just wanted to to share that thought as well as as i said dedicating this episode to all of you Coming up in today's show. What film should learn, what flat films and cinema should learn from this is that they should stop considering game as a lower form of art or a lower form of expression. There are incredible artists making games today and the and and cinema has had a tradition of considering itself as a superior art form and everything that has to do with online, with internet, with uh, interactivity such as games is just a degraded form of entertainment. And I don't I don't think it's true anymore. Hello everyone and welcome to Film Disruptors season 3. My name is Alex Stoltz, and as regular listeners know, this is the show where we share insights and strategies from the trailblazers who are shaping the future of film. And it's been a little while since the last episode. Basically, the Future of Film Summit at the end of last year took over my life. If you weren't able to attend, the event was really well received. And I was personally very gratified that not an even number of people came, but the conversations and the debate and the the projects which are spinning out of it already, actually. And we have some exciting plans for 2020. Uh, we are currently working on. So thank you for all of your support for that and also for bearing with me over this time in terms of the podcast. It's great to be back, particularly with such an esteemed guest as we have today. Michelle Riak is recognized as a leading authority in virtual reality. He is maker of acclaimed immersive works, a thought leader and speaker at many major global events, and a driving force behind the leading immersive festival, Venice VR Days. Michelle's career is fascinating and particularly relevant, I suppose, to this show because it began in film. Between 2002 and 2012, he was head of cinema and film acquisitions at Arte France, the leading 
uh, media publisher and uh, public broadcaster there, and also executive director of Arte France Cinema. And he co-produced over 300 feature films during that time. In today's conversation, Michel shares his deep understanding of the world of VR and its development both as an art form and commercial proposition. If you want to understand where immersive is now and where it might be heading, then this episode is going to give you that insight. And we cover some fascinating areas such as digital twinning. I didn't know what that was, but uh, we learned learn that in the course of the conversation. The fusion of games and storytelling, something which I'm personally fascinated by, and the new business models driving VR forward. Michel also reveals his hope for the medium and why he believes VR can yet make a major impact in the world, not only in storytelling, but on a social and cultural level. And like all my guests, Michel shares his advice for emerging storytellers. If you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a few ways to stay up to date. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify or indeed any of the major podcast platforms. You can also sign up for updates at the new home of Film Disruptors, which is futureoffilm.live. That's futureoffilm.live. Just enter your email to stay up to date with all of the latest Future of Film news and podcast episodes straight to your inbox. This is where you can also access all three seasons of the show, find out more about the individual guests and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leads me to say thank you for listening and now please enjoy this conversation with Michelle Riak. And I started the show by asking Michelle how he moved in to the immersive space. I was head of cinema um, for Arte, the French-German cultural broadcaster, between 2002 and 2012. And as such, my work was to scout talent and uh, co-produce around 30 feature films every year from all over the world. And um, yeah, and so it was about keeping alive this idea that independent filmmaking is an art form in itself and there are few uh, broadcasters that are supporting it and Arte made a specialty of being that one partner in the uh, TV world that made films by young artists, by young independent artists possible. So that's what I was doing. And in doing that, um, starting in about 2007, 2008, I started meeting um, storytellers and filmmakers who were exploring the then very new uh, world of uh, online um, methods, dynamics, and exploring how the internet could be used uh, to tell stories that would be more than just uh, stories being told to an audience, but maybe told with an audience participating. It was the very beginning of that, which then became called transmedia. 
And I got very involved. We were able at Arte to finance a few experiments with this. Um, and it grew on me. And I found that that was a place where creativity was young, was unshaped, was chaotic, was not going really anywhere in terms of a commercial um, you know, system or model, but everything was being invented there. And I was really, really fascinated by that. I decided that at the end of 2012 to resign from my job at Arte, leave the, the world of traditional uh, cinema, to get involved in transmedia. And that's when in March 2013, Oculus uh, did its Kickstarter campaign to fund its first Rift, its first headset for virtual reality. Mm. And that struck me as something new and important because I had had my first experience in VR in 1992, which is a long time ago, when I curated the first show at a cultural institution in the north of France called Le Frenois, and where I commissioned Matt Mulliken, an artist from New York, to come and do an installation with VR, which he was exploring at the time. Mm. And by collaborating with him on this, I discovered uh, VR. Since 1992, I had kept myself informed of the different attempts um, from mostly toy makers mm -hmm. to try and bring a VR headset into the market as video games were growing and becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. It never obviously happened, but it kept me interested in that. And when in 2013, Oculus started, and then when in March, a year later, in March 2014, Facebook acquired Oculus for over $2 billion at the time, I thought, okay, this, this is something to be taken seriously. And I started getting involved very um, very with a great focus uh, as a curator, as a maker, um, as a programmer. And I would say from 2014 on, I, um, I started making my own films in VR, mm. uh, programming, mm. talking to people, trying to understand mm. what this was all about. Mm. And that's where I am now. You know, mm. I, I guess I'm one of the first to have come from the flat film world of independent filmmaking yeah. and to transition yes. into uh, immersive uh, yeah. storytelling, which at the time when I left Arte was very funny because <laughs> I, I knew a lot of people, you know, in, in, in that world. There wasn't a one single director or producer or friend in, the, in that community who supported me. And everyone said... You must be crazy to you know to leave the the a job you have which gives you a panoramic vision you know of what happens in that world. You can finance films. You, you're you know you're in a beautiful position mm -hmm. to help independent filmmakers mm -hmm. make their films. And now you leave to just go in this you know like teenagers sort of fantasy. Uh, gimmicky mm. world of VR and 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 interactive. You you must be crazy. Now they're all coming back and asking me to teach them <laughs> and asking me oh, yeah. to help them. You wow. know, also discover this. Wow, that's uh, fascinating and and uh, and very courageous that that step because, like you say, I mean, at that point, it was so nascent and 
and and there wasn't a, a commercial model. Um, oh, there was nothing. Yeah. There was absolutely nothing. It was the big unknown. But that's what I love. I think being, you know, I was a dancer a long time ago in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I left Paris where I was living then to go to New York and, and because that's where it was happening. But at the time, contemporary dance was nothing. It was it was an emerging form. And I, I then went back to France in the early 80s to, to work on dance. Uh, and I became head of the National Center for Contemporary Dance. And, and then we invented basically the shape and the form of modern dance. I feel so fortunate that for a second time in my life, years later, I'm involved in the exact same place of a big wide unknown and contributing, participating in shaping, inventing a new art form, a new language. Wow. It's, it's an amazing privilege. Incredibly exciting. And so tell me, I'm, 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 that's, that's fascinating about the, the work in modern dance. Are you seeing certain parallels then between that and where you are in, in the, the art form of VR? Are you- yes, there's definitely a parallel, which is the passion that mm-hmm. comes into play. The reason why dancers then and choreographers did what they did is that they were completely passionate about the, the, the unknown factor of it all not knowing where it was going, not knowing whether they would make a living out of it, not knowing whether there was uh, an economic model behind it, not knowing whether it was viable, is part of the thrill, Mm. is part of the challenge. Mm. And now we're in a different place with VR because we know that it's going to happen. It's no longer a question of whether it's going to happen, it's when and how quickly. Mm. So we've gone beyond now that time which lasted between, let's say, 2013 and uh, last year, when it was truly uh, a gamble. Um, now the investment in the field, the, the amount of people you know, coming to the community inventing, creating, making incredible content in VR um, is such that we we know that it is happening. Mm. So yeah, there is a parallel when you when you when you enjoy being a pioneer, when you enjoy being an explorer and you don't need to be reassured that the time and the energy you're spending on what you're doing is going to pay off in the end because the journey is is the treasure in itself it's it's this growl thing where the quest becomes the treasure and you know just living that experience of making something happen regardless of whether you're going to be successful or not is 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 the fun is the is worth it well, it's, it's wonderful to hear. That's quite I, quite personally helpful to me at the moment as I as I as I push forward my my various projects, um, and and very exciting. So, where do we, where would you say we are then with with VR at the moment in terms of it, you said it's it's going to happen, but um, what does happening look like, um, and and how far you know what what do we need to what needs to happen before that all takes place? I think one of the, I will leave aside the technology because the technology is is bubbling. I mean, every week something new happens and it's quite incredible, but I will leave that aside. 
I will even leave aside the fact that more and more artists and creative people are approaching VR and looking at it, playing with it, and making stuff with it in many, many different ways. Creativity is also bubbling. But one of the signs I think that is new and that is very comforting in the, in the fact that VR is going to be a part of our future is the kind of investors who are coming to the field. There has been a whole first wave of investors in companies that came with very high expectations and expecting to have a return on their investment very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that never happens. It, it hasn't happened in the, you know, in the internet when they, into, you know, 2008, when it all burst, the bubble burst. It, it was the same pattern. So those first investors who thought that they would become rich with internet, with, uh, sorry, with the virtual reality, are all disappointed and they're the ones leaving the ship and in leaving the ship are making quite a lot of companies go bankrupt and stop having to fold. So that has created a sort of a feeling that VR is not going to happen. But now there's a second wave of investors who are coming into the game knowing that all the studies, the recent studies that have been done in the last year, are pointing in the direction that it's going to take four to five years for VR to become publicly, massively adopted. And they're in it knowing that. So the patience that they have as regards their return on their investment is healthy because it allows those companies that they invest in, those artists that they invest in, to have time to experiment and to mature um, in a healthy way. And I have several examples, you know, of actual um, companies, both in Europe and in South America, who have recently successfully um, acquired, you know, the funding that they needed uh, in such spirit. And that's a very healthy base to, to continue, you know, uh, working. So that's one element which I think makes the market healthy. And I would say the second thing that makes things hopeful now is that where VR is happening truly and where it's going to happen uh, quicker is not in the entertainment field, aside from games. I'm, I'm leaving games aside. But it's in the field of um, uh, professional training, in the field of health, education, um, niche markets like real estate, tourism, um, that you're seeing the obvious applications of VR. And that's where money is being made as we speak. So people are going to start becoming more and more familiar with VR in other fields of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, than entertainment, aside from games. Because mm. right now, games are the most advanced, I would say, in terms of sophistication mm. and public adoption. Mm. Mm. But in terms of storytelling, which is our focus, uh, in terms of storytelling, it's going to be a, a longer while uh, for um, artists to master the language of storytelling in VR because the main difference, and that's our main challenge, 
between film and VR is that film is an art form that has learned to manipulate time. While VR is an art form that manipulates time in the same way, but also manipulates space. And what that means is something we don't really know yet. We're at the very beginning of that, but the strength of VR will come from developing a language where space becomes as manipulable, as, as uh, fluid in the, in the art of storytelling by, by artists. Wow. Do you make a distinction between VR and some of the developments in AR, just a point of clarification, is that, do you sort of see it as all, as all one kind of um, progress or, or do you see them as, as, as different entities? Um, technically, it's, technically it's different because what we consider truly immersive is when your brain is allowed to disconnect from the physical environment. In AR, you're adding a layer of information uh, on top of the real world. Uh, so technically, it's different. But what we call now XR brings together augmented reality, virtual reality, and mixed reality, mm. which is the HoloLens um, uh, Magic Leap kind of uh, technology. Yeah. And eventually, I think it will all converge because I'm sure that in the future, and I'm talking maybe 10 years from now, when glasses will become as ubiquitous, I mean, uh, uh, digital glasses will become as ubiquitous as our phones mm. uh, today, uh, these glasses will allow us to correct our vision, the same way our phones sometimes help us pick up a phone call, but it will also, they will also be AR glasses, MR glasses, and VR glasses just by activating you know, the, the different functions on them. So eventually, the, the, those screens, even if they're 360 screens in the case of VR, will be, which the glasses will be, um, will, um, will encompass all of these different layers and levels of digital reality into our physical world. Mm. What is the future of film? Discover the trends, strategies, and technologies that are shaping film's future in the Future of Film 2020 report. Download your copy now for free at futureoffilm.live. That's the Future of Film 2020 report, available now at futureoffilm.live. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with VR pioneer Michelle Rayak. As I said, I mean, this is a field, the, the, this idea of how can we manipulate space the same way that film manipulates time uh, in VR is something very new that we're only beginning to become aware of. Mm. By that, I mean, for instance, I'll take something very simple um, the experience of flying. When you, there are many experiences in VR where you can fly and you have different ways of flying. Um, but the interesting thing is that unlike in a film, when you are 
enclosed in a way in the virtual world, which encompasses everything in terms of your perceptions, when you start flying in VR, you feel your muscles, your brain, your muscles controlled by your brain, actually feel that you are flying. That's a huge difference. In cinema, when we, when we watch a flat film, our brain is aware of the fact that around the screen on which we are watching the film, there is a theater, there are people sitting next to us, the physical world is present. And it's our imagination that channels our immersion into the story. In VR, that visual information to the brain that we are in a physical world is cut off, disappears. Therefore, the brain is tricked in, in taking for granted that everything that we're seeing is the reality for that, for that moment. That's why the, the term virtual reality is perfect, is exactly mm -hmm. what it is. So when I am tricked into thinking that I'm flying now and I do not need to use the filter of my imagination to immerse myself into what it must be like uh, flying, but it's a very direct, almost neurological sensation all of a sudden. It's no longer intellectual. It's it becomes actually physical. It changes literally everything. And my relationship to space has changed. I may still be aware in the back of my mind that I'm actually standing still, you know, on my legs. Mm. But the sensation that is dictated by my brain, who is tricked to my muscles, is that of a physical sensation of flying so in venice when we for venice vr the the vr competition that we hold now every year uh in within the frame of the international venice film festival we show about 40 different um, experiences and we take care each time of considering how will the physical and spatial experience of the viewer be. That means several things. There's, there's, first, there's the concept of what we call onboarding and outboarding, which is how do you transition from walking into a room, for instance, and before you're going to put on your VR headset, what will be that transition? How can that transition that leads you to put on the headset on your head mm. participate into the, um, the story world? And how, in the end, when the experience in the headset will be finished, how, what will it mean to take off the headset and transition back to the real world, which is what we call the outboarding? Mm. There is more and more thought that is being... Uh, produced in including the inboarding and outboarding of an experience into the story world so that there's a sort of a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. And that is done through space. It can be through decorating the space. It can be done through tactile sensations. It can be through interaction with a performer, for instance. There are many different ways that can be done. Mm -hmm. um, but you also um, take that into account in juxtaposing or opposing the physical space in which you, you, you are when you put on the headset and the, and the virtual space in which you're going to dive in um, when you put the headset on mm. and create a tension, a narrative tension between the two.
It's a little bit abstract, maybe, but no, no, what no, I um, I can I can give you a, a, an example. For instance, there are experiences where when you put your headset on, what you see in the headset is the exact space in which you were standing um, physically just before. No difference. Mm. So there's a direct connection in a way in what I saw before I put the headset and what I'm seeing now that I have the headset on. But once I see it in the, with the headset, as I'm going to be, for instance, walking through that space, that room, and touching the walls, I'm going to start triggering things like colors may come out of the wall and materialize into some kind of floating blob uh, in front of me and then if I poke my head into that floating color blob I'm going to start being projected into a complete fantasy world and then I'm going to transition into another dimension and all of that by being in the same space where I was except that VR has allowed me to transform that neutral physical passive space into a highly active interactive space for my fantasy trip in in VR Fascinating. Uh, well, that feels like yeah, it's 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 much needed innovation in that space. I mean, I think we've all experienced, not everyone obviously, but people in the film industry have experienced film festivals where VR's in some room off to the side, and it's you know it, it's you want to just chucks on a chair, and you have to someone comes around and puts plonks a headset on you and. And yeah, you're just kind of, yeah, just, it's not the most um, enticing experience. Um, so that's, that's really interesting. And do you, so this idea, I guess, of exhibiting VR altogether, do you think that's something which is, uh, you know, is not sustainable, but the is something which will continue into the future when we all have headsets already, um, because it's yeah. I think this this is another thing which festivals have struggled with, which is about this idea that it's you can only have so many people experiencing it at a time, and it, and it's and it, everyone's in their own space. It's very it's about. It's not so much a communal experience. Well, that's no longer true. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example uh, which took place in February this year uh, on Fortnite. Fortnite is uh, is a game, you know, online game, massive. Mm. It has around 250 million registered players. Mm. Um, a singer called Marshmallow, a rap music singer, um, musician, decided to hold a concert in Fortnite. So he spent a week building in Fortnite the actual stage as if it would have been in the physical world. So for a whole week, he chose a space in Fortnite and built the stage and all the sound system and the projection, etc. and announcing that he was going to hold a concert on such date. The concert took place for a 12-hour stretch. There were 10 million people who attended the concert. A lot of them uh, through their avatars, through their Fortnite avatars, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them without materializing into avatars. 
But the impact of that concert was such that a lot of people are now thinking of that as a, as a model. There had never been anywhere in the world um, such an amount of people, you know, attending one single event mm -hmm. uh, during a, a, a period like that. So the idea that uh, VR is a, is a solitary experience and is not a, a group experience mm -hmm. is no longer true. Yeah. You can enjoy uh, VR experiences in many, many different ways with people, including cinema. I will present tomorrow very quick glimpses of some of the platforms that exist today where you can invite friends uh, and, and have a screening in a virtual cinema with popcorn and a bar and everything, mm. um, you know, with friends from all over the world. And you just set up a time, you buy the screening of the film you want to watch together, and then you can, you can meet together after the screening mm. and discuss. Mm. And that can go up to several hundred people at the same time. Mm. So there are more games. Games are more and more done in teams in VR and that you, where you see each other as avatars. Avatars themselves are going to change. Right now we need to uh, build our avatars with a limited set of options. Um, the new Facebook Horizon, which is going to be the new collective um, uh, platform in VR that uh, Facebook is going to launch next year, you can only have half bodies, the, the upper parts of your of your bodies. But soon, there's already prototypes that have been shown. We're going to have what we call digital twins, where we are going to have exact duplicates of ourselves who will be our avatars and we will be able to meet with each other you know through these digital twins when that happens the 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 the, the borders between reality and fiction are going to be tremendously blurred which is going to trigger very complex psychological challenges mm. in terms of identity, in terms of, you know, understanding who we are, identity manipulation, but yeah. we don't need to get into that right well, now. Well, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I want to get into it in some ways, but I know it's sort of veering off topic, but it is fascinating, these, these social challenges that this is going to, this potential future is going to, you know, throw up um, with people. If you have glasses, what about the people who don't have glasses? You know, how's that, how's that going to work? Um, and you think about how people present themselves or can present themselves online, on social media, everything's, my life is fantastic. How, how can that, you know, how will that translate in terms of your, your social avatar? Big questions. Big <laughs> which questions. Are, which, you know, maybe, maybe are too big. But, but questions which spur from exactly what's happening today. I mean, Avatar mm -hmm. has become a sort of a display window of our fantasized um, happiness, you know, mm -hmm. and we, we sell ourselves through, through uh, Facebook uh, more than we actually share what we truly do. Mm -hmm. And we constantly fantasize, idealize, you know, our, our lives through this. So I guess basically this sort of multi-layered identities that we have uh, is already, uh, this system is already activated through the social networks. Yeah. It's, just, it's, just, uh, it's just going to grow bigger mm. and more complex. Mm. Mm. And what, uh, in terms of storytelling, what are you seeing at the moment? What are you most excited about in this space? 
I see that there's a real movement um, of, of consciousness, awareness of the major issues of our time. And there are more and more um, usage of, uh, of VR to share uh, concerns, share solutions, share awareness about global warming, about identity, about uh, gender equality, about you know, global financing, alternatives to, that are that are made possible uh, to individuals and communities and because vr is an immersive media its impact is much higher than a, a traditional tutorial for instance on a flat screen mm. so it is a proven fact that when you experience something in an immersive uh, medium you remember it much longer and deeper than if it was um, something you read or something you watched. So the um, uh, effectiveness of VR as a medium for the causes you know, that, it, that it can represent is, um, is, is, very, is, is very high. So it's, uh, I like, I enjoy seeing in a, in a lot of the things that we're seeing as uh, in the selection of, uh, for Venice VR, we do see more and more pieces that are done in that, in that vein, well-being, awareness, uh, f uh, fighting uh, global warming, fighting, you know, or contributing to uh, trying to find solutions for migrants um, and gender equality. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a trend mm. um, and um, I see it as a growing one. Mm. Do you think it's this capacity VR has for empathy, is that a key part of the uh, putting yourself in someone else's shoes? Is, is that, is that what some of these? I think, I, I used to think definitely yes. I think now I would, I'm slightly more nuanced because I spend a lot of time in the headsets and I observe on myself how I'm now able to sort of disconnect my VR experience from my real world experience. Right. In other words, I'm, I'm thinking that the empathy factor that was talked a lot about in the beginning of VR could be the exact same effect as what happened when uh, cinema began and when people were afraid when they saw a train entering a station on the screen mm -hmm. and taking it for real. The empathy factor, I think, is not going to be that much stronger as it is in, in a good movie. When I watch a very good movie, when I, when I read a very good book, my empathy towards the, the characters is super strong. I mean, when you watch a series, you, you grow attached you know to some of the characters in, in, in a very very personal and close way and I think empathy in that way is a side effect of the of the the first moments when you experience VR but the more we experience it hmm. uh, the more I think it's it doesn't work by itself it's not that it's not a natural byproduct of VR. It works if the story is good mm. and if the character 
building is good if the if the overall story world holds and is is powerful mm. if you don't have that um vr is not going to make you empathize automatically with any character mm. so uh, going going back to film because that's that's where we we started the conversation where what do you think film could learn from vr at this time um, Is that enough of a question? Yes, uh, and I think there are two answers to that that are, that are connected. One is about interactivity. The one thing that makes VR special mm-hmm. is interactivity in, the, in, in, a, in an immersive um, mm-hmm. surrounding. That's a huge difference with film. When you can start interacting with a character in real time, when you can take actions when you, when you can do things that will change the course of the uh, you know the storyline um, it's something you cannot experience in cinema so that's one of the main elements that's going to make VR more and more special and what it's going to do is that in in including interactivity in its uh, in its um, structure it's merging with game. The game dynamics are being appropriated by storytelling in VR. The same way that, by the way, games are appropriating script writing more and more in their, you know, in their structure as they become more sophisticated. So this hybrid form between game, game, using game dynamics and story world is something very specific to VR that is Uh, made possible through interactivity. What film should learn, what flat films and cinema should learn from this is that they should stop considering game as a lower form of art or a lower form of expression. There are incredible artists making games today and the and and cinema has had a tradition of considering itself as a superior art form and everything that has to do with online, with internet, with uh, interactivity such as games is just a degraded form of entertainment. And I don't I don't think it's true anymore. And by not considering um, how the audience of the film can be associated, can be involved, can be um, pulled into the story world in one way or another, um, I think it, it, it would be, it's a mistake for, for the film world to, mm. to not look at that mm. in, in terms of structurally. When you look at the success of organizations like Secret Cinema, in the UK, you know, b- uh, making huge events, live events with hundreds and hundreds of participants uh, around the, the story world of a film, you, you see how much people enjoy that. This notion of experience is very, very strong. So LARPing, for instance, uh, live action role playing is a big thing and it's growing. Uh, a speaker earlier today was talking about the, the huge success of escape room games. Um, these are ways that people can feel that they are being sucked into a fiction world in which they are fully 
uh, present and taken into account. And we love that. We love this participatory dimension. I think cinema can, on the basis of a film, should not stop at what the film is, but use the film as almost like an entry point into the story world of the film and start thinking of how film can engage audiences in participating in that way. Mm. I made a, when I was at Arte, I, I made a, a LARP like this around a, a French film by Mathieu Amalric called Tournée, on tour. And it was the story of a group of um, burlesque uh, American women dancers led by a French guy who was trying to give them a tour by promising them they would end up in a big theater in Paris. And the film ends with a, a real cliffhanger where you, you really don't know what's going to happen to this group of people. So I organized the LARP, the live action role play, for about 40 audience members, spectators of Arte, that they, who could register. And they came to a studio. They had to make up their own costumes. They were given, each one, they were given a role of a, you know, a character in the film. Mm -hmm. And when the film ended, the game started. And they had the whole night to play and take the story wherever they wanted it to go. But each one knowing who, who, which character they were, it was a huge success. It was really amazing. And I'm, since then, I've been thinking that I would really love to do that as a regular genre. But it was so involving for the people who participate to all of a sudden continue the story world by being the character. So it was as if there was a transition between the film and then when the when the ended and the game started, the characters continued to live, except that they were not embodied by the same people. In the film, it was by actors. In the game, by the spectators. And that was a very, very interesting uh, fiction process. What fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so much fun. Um, I just very quickly, we've got... Uh, one more sort of question on film and, and VR, just in terms of the the financials side of it. The film is notorious for its how complex it is to piece together the finance and and recruitment. Um, I guess the the models, the the markets for VR are, are evolving, you know, on, on that side. But are there? Um, how how is VR how are VR stories generally being financed at the moment? What's the model for that? Is it is it investing in the company or is it investing in individual works? As I said uh, before, there there's this wave of investors who are now investing in companies uh, supported by makers, and the, this is the healthiest in a way or or happiest way for a maker to be able to make their content when they have the money being trusted to them to make their piece. But that's still only a few, and it's more the exception than the rule. Um, the second, the, the market as it exists today is uh, LBE, location-based entertainment. So it is those uh, pieces, those stories that are usually quite sophisticated that include um, uh, you know, uh, building, for instance, a mock-up of the virtual world so that when you touch a wall in the virtual world, the same wall is in the physical world. So you, when you reach out with your hand to touch the virtual world, your hand is actually going to 
find a physical wall. So that's quite complex. With You can have things with vibrating floors to reproduce a sensation that you're going up and down or in, a, in some kind of a rocket or a car. You can have a live interaction with performers, all things that you could not reproduce in an at-home entertainment uh, uh, content. So this is done in... Uh, cultural institutions, in uh, malls, in um, historical locations, for instance. And this is a business. This makes breaks even. Mm. It, uh, it, it's very successful um, and uh, people pay for the experience that can last between 10 minutes and a half hour. Mm. Um, and uh, it cannot be reproduced at home for obvious reasons. Mm. So that's an, an existing market. Mm. A direct competition to cinema, perhaps. In that sense, yes, except that it's usually shorter. Yeah. For the moment. Mm. Um, so this would be the equivalent of what you find already everywhere, which are like game arcades, you know, where you do zombie games and uh, uh, dinosaur games and, and war games. Um, but for the more sophisticated story driven content, that would be the equivalent. That's the location-based entertainment. Mm. But now we're seeing the success of the Quest, the Oculus Quest, which is the latest uh, VR headset released by Oculus, uh, which is untethered. Um, it's going super well. I mean, it's, it's selling like crazy, and it's the, the beginning of the at-home uh, entertainment market for VR. So those contents mm -hmm. will start selling to these people that acquire a headset because they want to play Beat Saber, for instance, which is the number one uh, VR content that is the first big commercial success. You can buy it, I think, for 29 uh, euros. And it's it's uh, an amazing game that people play. I play it every day for fitness. Okay. Um, wow. And but games uh, games range from you know ten to let's say thirty euros, and you buy it the same way you would yeah. buy uh, you know a game on your mm. PlayStation. There's a great great marketplace. Of that yes, thing. and so that's that's beginning. But distribution remains the weak point uh, till today, mm. and it's only now structuring itself. Mm. Well, that's uh, absolutely fascinating, Michelle. Thank you for that uh, amazing tour of the the, the, you know, the landscape for VR now. I'd like to end this this chat with uh, the question I ask all of my guests on the show, which is, what is your advice for an emerging storyteller? So someone who is new to, new to this, wants to create work, uh, wants to create art, where would they, where where would you recommend they started, and what would you recommend they, uh, how how they approach that? I would recommend that they first identify the reason why they want to tell stories. Some people want to make films because they want to be the next Martin Scorsese and they want to um, be famous. Um, that's one reason. Uh, and other people want to tell stories because they believe in a particular cause, they believe in a particular vision of the world that they want to fight for. And any way will be right for those people, you know, as long as it promotes this cause that they believe in mm. or values uh, that they believe in. So I think identifying the 
real, deep, intimate reason why you want to tell a story is absolutely key because you're not going to have the same strategy if you want to become rich than if you want to contribute uh, towards uh, fighting global warming. Um, so that would be the first step. And once that is identified, I would, I would say we're so lucky that we live in a time when there are so many options to tell those stories. So film is one way, but I would say then there is writing, there is photography, there is uh, VR, there is um, writing um, live events, uh, participatory theater, role playing, all of that participates of the same landscape in which you can then uh, work and choose your options and sometimes many different options for the same for the same story. So I believe very much in the concept of a story world as opposed to a story. I think a good story has the potential to grow into a whole world, a story world, in which you can pick and choose the different ways you're going to populate this story world and you're going to make it become alive, you know, for me as a spectator. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of this, when you, when you remain open to all these options, is that everything starts making sense. And each thing, a film here, a VR component there, are not going to say the exact same thing. They're going to enrich each other by bringing different lights onto that same story world. And I love the fact that some characters can live in a flat dimension in a film world, but they can also live in a 3D and 360 degree dimension in the VR world. But having a live event is also something that can be totally relevant to that story world. And then it depends then on the sensitivity of the maker. But think story world more than just story. So that was my conversation with Michelle Riak, VR pioneer, recorded in Amsterdam 2019. If you want to find out more about any of the guests on the show, listen to other episodes or get in touch, you can do all of this at futureoffilm.live. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon. Hi, it's Alex here. I'm convinced that there are now incredible opportunities for producers looking to bring stories to screen. There are now more formats, platforms, distribution, and financing strategies than ever before. That's why I am launching the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program. It's a 12-month virtual program designed for producers looking to build future-proofed businesses and careers. Discover how the Future of Film Entrepreneurial Storyteller Program can take your projects and career to the next level and register your interest today at futureoffilm.live slash ESP. That's futureoffilm.live slash ESP. Mm-hmm.